Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, Nick Solheim, the Chief Operations Officer of American Moment, and I'm joined by Emma Posey, the Coalition's Manager of American Moment. And we have a great episode for you today. Uh, Before we get into that, though, just want to highlight a couple things. You may have seen on Twitter that we just released our uh, trailer for Fellowship for American Statecraft, uh, the 2021 edition. Uh, we kind of put together this video of all the things that our fellows got up to this summer, all the speakers they had, uh, kind of the experience they had to really hype everyone up for for what we got up to uh, this summer and what we're going to get up to next summer. Uh, so if you'd like to check that out, you can see it at AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship. Um, in addition to that, on on that page, there's also a uh, form that you can fill out if you're interested uh, in being an American Moment Fellow next year, uh, or if you know someone who is, uh, you can direct them to that form. Uh, basically, if this is your first time listening, uh, the American Moment Fellowship for American Statecraft is a program where we pay $3,000 a month uh, to, to basically place interns here uh, in DC in positions of influence uh, four days a week, they intern in a congressional office or, uh, you know, in a nonprofit. And then Fridays, they're with us, um, you know, receiving training from luckily not uh, us, but, you know, seasoned experts and scholars. Um, so we really enjoyed, uh, you know, having our 10 fellows here this summer. And we're really looking forward to how that program goes next summer. Uh, additionally, we just launched an American Moment store, uh, limited time only. Hopefully, this will still be up and not sold out next week. Uh, but we are selling some merch from the last party we did, uh, Party Hard and Carry a Big Stick. Uh, so we have this drawing that was done by a buddy of mine, uh, Derek uh, Werwine. I uh, did a drawing of Teddy Roosevelt uh, beating the tech oligarchs to pieces, uh, and we put it on a shirt and on a coffee mug. So if you'd like to buy one, uh, if you go to americamoment.org slash store, uh, we have both of those for sale, and it's also a little cheaper if you buy both of them together. Uh, so make sure to check that out. Um, just... We're not saying there's a correlation, but Facebook did go dead right after we released this. So that is true. That is true. So your there may purchase be, could help support this. There may be magical powers in the shirt, though. We're not claiming that, but we're not <laughs> claiming it's not true either. Uh, and then just one last thing, you know, we work really hard to provide a great show for you here uh, at American Moment. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind rating our podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh YouTube, send me a carrier pigeon, whatever. Um, We really do try hard to bring you great, exciting guests. Uh, We like to have a lot of fun on this show, uh, and you guys supporting us really helps us do that. So that leads us to the very interesting episode that we have today. Uh, So Emma and I went out to uh, Moscow, uh, Idaho, not Russia, uh, to interview... Someone a little controversial. Uh, I'm sure a couple of our listeners, you know, as soon as I said Moscow, Idaho, went, oh, no. They went (laughs) to go see Pastor Douglas Wilson. And you are right. We did. Um, You, you know, if you follow us on Twitter, you may you may have seen, uh, you know, Emma or I once or twice have uh, have tweeted, uh, you know, Pastor Wilson's articles, uh, some of his quotes, uh, we're both pretty big fans, uh, have been uh, listening to his blog and May blog as well as reading his books uh, for a long time. So we made the trip out there uh, just to see what Pastor Wilson thought about 
a lot of things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> culture, politics, uh, the conservative movement as it stands. Um, so I'm going to read his bio here real quick. Uh, Douglas Wilson is the minister of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, which is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. After his stint in the submarine service of the U.S. Navy, he attended the University of Idaho, where he obtained a master's in philosophy. As one of its founders, he has served on the board of Logos School, a classical and Christian school, since its inception. He is also a senior fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College. He is the author of numerous books, including Reforming Marriage, The Case for Classical Christian Education, Letter from a Christian Citizen, and others. He is also uh, the general editor for the Omnibus Textbook Series, and his blog can be found at www.dougwills.com. I do have to say he mentions five or six books. I think he's he's written like dozens. I want to say it's not over a hundred. Is I it? thought it was 160 books. Yeah, I, I like, was going to say. I knew this I, man has published more books than we have articles. Yes, yeah. yes. So a lot of books. Guy writes a lot. Uh, highly recommend, you know, checking out his blog, uh, com. Pick up some of his books. Um, we had a really wide-ranging conversation uh, with Pastor Wilson today, um, you know, talking a lot about particularly a Protestant approach uh, to conservative politics. You know, Mm -hmm. D.C. is a place uh, dominated by, maybe dominated is a strong word, but (laughs) but there are a lot of Catholics in this town. We'll just we'll just put it that way. Um, So so, you know, talked about Protestantism in in politics, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of our role is in this movement and what we should actually be seeking uh, and why we you know, don't really have a, a, a reason to be blackpilled about the moment that we're in. So uh, I really enjoyed talking with Pastor Wilson. I told him uh, when I first shook his hand, I said, this is kind of like meeting a rock star. Uh, <laughs> and he said, I can tell you haven't met a lot of rock stars, uh, which I thought was hilarious. But uh, anyway, mm-hmm. what, did, what did you think about the episode today? Yeah, we had an incredible conversation with Pastor Wilson. Um, like Nick was saying, I think it's rare to find strong Protestant intellectual voices to help guide us in this conservative moment on the right. And Pastor Wilson is one of the top voices with that. Um, In particular, he talked a lot about Reformed theologians, Abraham Kuyper, who has written on different aspects of sphere sovereignty of the family, of the state, and of the church, and the roles and responsibilities that each of those have, um, and how we can sort of help navigate, like, yeah, when the government is overstepping in light of this framework. And then not only that, we looked into what it means to even inconsistently, but move in the right direction in our policy. So it doesn't have to be we are always spot on in the correct direction, but as long as we are slowly but surely moving that way, how big of an impact that can have. So we talked about Ronald Reagan, communism, and um, Granada, and how that was such a huge move in undermining the uh, communist narrative, and how from that the Soviet Union fell, and so on. So thinking about like current issues today, like what it looks like to take that issue and topple it, even if it's a very small example, right? Like even Loudoun County in Virginia, even those small moves can completely undermine the narrative. And so I thought it was a very practical episode in the sense that it took like these philosophies that we often discuss and then just put like hands and feet on it. And what does it look like not only to live your Christian faith, but also, yeah, take that in your policies, um, the politics that you're engaging in and actually, yeah, move forward with that positively. Yeah, I have to say, you know, aside from just having this episode, you know, with Pastor Wilson, we also had a great time gallivanting around moscow idaho uh yeah if you haven't been which i'm 
guessing most of our listeners haven't. Uh, it's a really charming, uh, great place to spend a lot of time. There are a lot of cool shops, restaurants, mm-hmm. a lot of friendly people. Uh, I brought my wife with me uh, because I thought um, she would enjoy it, and Emma brought her fiance Jack. So we just had a had a good time in Moscow. We appreciate their uh, generosity, and so uh, with that, we will now go to Pastor Douglas Wilson. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Pastor Wilson. Good to be here. So we kind of like to start uh, every episode with um, kind of an overview of, of who you are and, and right. your career and what you're doing now. So uh, could you kind of walk us through what you've been doing the last couple of years? Okay. So I'm uh, my day job, I'm a pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. Moscow is a small university town in the chimney of Idaho. I've been here since 1975 been the pastor of this church since 1977. So that's uh, the center of what I do. It, the other things flow out of that. Um, the other things I I am involved in, I uh, write a lot. So I, I do the pastoral preaching, uh, counseling, whatever. Uh, you know, I do the pastoral work. And then another aspect of my, uh, my time is writing. I love to write. And so I, I blog regularly and write books and try to make noise that way. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you love to write and we love to read. So it's, <laughs> it, works, uh, it works out. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a marriage made in heaven, as it were. Uh, you know, one of the things that you're kind of known for in our space, uh, our space being uh, the political, uh, is, yeah. is a lot of the stances that you've taken on, uh, particularly, you know, conservative issues, uh, uh, especially over the last couple of years. Can you kind of walk us through what your philosophy is on that, how you kind of got into talking about some of those issues? Well, I've been talking about these issues for decades. And what happened was um, with the lockdowns, COVID, all all that nonsense, that sort of got everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. And so they they were starting to realize, like Richard Weaver said in his great book, ideas have consequences. And so what what has happened over the last couple of years is all the consequences have come down on regular people and they say, oh, <laughs> who we elect matters. Um, worldview matters. Uh, it's not just planks in a party platform. Uh, these things are, are big practical issues. So for a long time, since when, when America was running apparently on autopilot or cruise control, everybody thought, well, ideas don't matter. Ideas don't matter. Ide- you know, d- you're talking big words, makes my head hurt. Yeah, you know, leave me alone. Uh, I've got a family to feed and, you know, mm-hmm. again, leave me alone. Well, it turns out that there's a whole political party and a movement dedicated to not leaving you alone, right? And you have to have a worldview that enables you to know what to do when they come after you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been talking about that sort of thing for decades. And and what has happened, Samuel, Samuel Johnson once said uh, that there was, he was the writer the compiler of the first great english dictionary and he said there's one good thing about being hanged in a fortnight (laughs) he said it concentrates the mind wonderfully (laughs) (laughs) well everybody everybody's mind is concentrated wonderfully and i i believe that what has happened 
is we've gotten a lot of people's attention in the last couple of years because all of a sudden what we're saying seems relevant and interesting and applicable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, we've been talking about this since at least the mid 80s. And now, oh, this matters. if if I would if I were to describe my sort of rock bottom challenge to the political status quo, um, it would be it'd be this uh, item and all sorts of other things flow out of it. Uh, I would I want to argue that secularism is a failed god. Secularism is a failed exper- experiment, mm-hmm. and the besetting sin of conservatives, ostensible conservatives and real ones. The besetting sin is they oppose the uh, progressive left saying that won't work, that won't work. They get the program implemented. And then the conservatives say, here, elect us. We can make that work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But no, uh, secularism does not work. Uh, Human societies require a transcendental grounding. Mm -hmm. Um, You you cannot have a purely secularist um, uh, society that functions. Uh, now, a society can be anti-secularist and serve an idol. Um, and uh, I'm not saying idolatry is good, but idolatry is better than secularism because in overt idolatry, the idol that you worship is recognized and named. Uh, in secularism, the idol is unnamed. The idol is behind the curtain. The uh, the idol is tucked away, but it's an idol nonetheless. Mm. And so I believe that Christians, of all people who confess that Jesus is Lord, uh, should be willing to confess that he's the Lord of the public square. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. I think um, it was James K. Smith who said that it's not a question of if we worship, but what we worship. Mm -hmm. And that is central not only in our personal lives, but also as a nation in the direction that we go And so I think we are all very familiar with pastors who are political and frequently use their role in the pulpit to um, further their political ends or like a very cheap understanding of what's happening in our political discourse. But what we appreciate about you and your church and what you're doing here in Moscow is that you are not situating the conversation as here is culture and now like let's use the church to further the political agenda that is, but from your place rooted primarily in scripture, then you're saying now how do we take this and then cover it over all of creation, all of our nation and the way that we work. So can you talk us through, especially as a Protestant pastor, what it looks like to begin with a biblical basis and then how you interpret and apply that um, to our political discussions as that being the foundation. So like first religion, then culture, then politics, and not a misordering of those things. Sure. That's a great, great question. So I'll begin my Protestant answer by quoting a Catholic historian. <laughs> our, reader, our listeners will be very pleased to hear this. So, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't live in a bubble. I, <laughs> um, Christopher Dawson was a great Catholic historian, and he said the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and mm. can afford to be patient. Right. So the first thing to recognize is that the kingdom of God, uh, God, God's timetable for the kingdom of God and for the advancement of the kingdom, for the instantiation of the kingdom, is not our timetable. Uh, and, and so the growth of the kingdom of God is slow, methodical, inexorable, uh, nothing you can do to stop it. But it's like yeast working through the loaf, Jesus taught. Uh, you don't 
when a loaf is rising, you don't see it smoking and hear it clanking. It's quiet and it's just unobtrusive. And how did that happen? Uh, or a mustard seed growing to be a, a great plant. So the first thing to, to recognize is that the, the reformational Christian, I'm a reformed Christian, but I also want to be a reformational Christian. Uh, the, th- the thing that distinguishes reformation from revolution is patience and impatience. Okay, reformers can afford to be patient because they're Christians. And so when the Apostle Paul first got to Rome, he didn't start circulating petitions or clipboards to get the gladiatorial games banned. <laughs> you know, um, now the Christian church did wind up banning the gladi- gladiatorial games, mm-hmm. but it took centuries. Right? Uh, the, the Christian church eradicated polygamy over time, but it took centuries. Um, the, so the thing that Paul did was he planted churches. He, he said, what this place needs is gospel. What this place needs is uh, churches that are preaching um, an unvarnished gospel, an undiluted gospel. But the primary duty of man is to worship God. And then you establish centers of worship in Rome and, and throughout the Roman Empire. And then you wait. <laughs> you, you put the yeast in the loaf and then you wait. And, and then a moment will come when you start seeing cultural change as a result of the worship. And then as a result of the cultural change, you will start to see political change. If you try to, if you try to do it the other way, you know, politics first, what you're essentially doing is saying that politics can be our savior. But if politics could be our savior, then Jesus didn't have to die. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so you want to have, you want to uh, proclaim Christ as Lord, uh, as risen from the dead, Jesus was executed in the public square, and if the rulers of this age don't want Christianity in the public square, they should have thought of that before they crucified him there. (laughs) It's too too late now. And he came back from the dead and appeared publicly. Uh, So consequently, the Christian faith is of necessity a public religion. But it's not, and and it's of necessity political, but I would say political with a small p, not political in the sense of partisan, mm. right? So uh, when when a Christian church is planted, uh, if if I said to uh, uh, the dictator of North Korea, "Look, let me preach unrestricted uh, un, uh, in North Korea. Let me plant a church, and I'm not going to preach any political sermons." Uh, you know, at all. I'm not going to call for the overthrow of the government. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to preach that Christ is Lord. Well, that's political. And he knows, he know, the reason he would say no <laughs> is he knows how political it is. Because I don't have to say down with the supreme leader. I All I have to do is say Jesus is Lord. And that's mm. the message. And when that is proclaimed and people start worshiping weekly on that footing, on that basis, it starts to affect their cultural reflexes, their cultural understanding, all the informal things that make up a culture, the music people listen to, the movies they watch, the books they read. Uh, And then, and only then, is it possible to have political reforms instituted that flow naturally out of um, uh, what we've been declaring. So, um, I think it was Breitbart who's, who said that basically politics is downstream from culture. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's absolutely right. But culture is downstream from worship. Mm-hmm. So it's worship, culture, politics. Yeah, I think I want to pick up on uh, your initial point because I think it's very interesting, particularly talking about uh, reforming uh, institutions and culture and that sort of thing. We talk a lot uh, about in about this in D.C. that uh, there are a lot of people who just want to destroy these institutions, who want to destroy um, maybe the way that government works or a lot of the conservative institutions that haven't been doing, uh, you know, what they've promised, essentially. Uh, and we kind of not conserving anything. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and our kind of like framework for dealing with this is is, you know, kind of a slow and steady pace of reform, getting right. getting the people who are, you know, ideologically, uh, you know, basically compatible with our our worldview uh, and that includes you know religion that includes you know the christian faith um and putting these people in into institutions to change them i think there has been a resurgence in um you know a kind of right especially post 2016 uh where people have turned to just destruction and a a, a post christian uh, worldview of the right, if you will. You know, right. a lot of these people who, um, you know, they're instead of reading the Bible, they're reading Nietzsche, they're reading mm-hmm. uh, Evola, yeah. Spangler. Uh, there's actually a really good uh, book about this that I'll have to send you by a guy named uh, Matthew Rose. Uh, it's about uh, philosophers of the post-Christian right. Um, what do you think about, you know, some of the people who look to a lot of these institutions and say, oh, this is great, you know, as an example, being married, right? They say being married is great because optically it's it's good, and to create, you know, children is a good thing. Uh, instead of looking and saying that marriage is a holy institution instituted by God alone, um, there are a lot of people who kind of take a similar view of politics. How are they going to fall short? You know, looking at a lot of these post-Christian philosophers. This this goes back to what I said earlier about the necessity of a transcendental grounding for for what you're saying if i if i say hey let's encourage marriage because i think marriage is great and and the children don't wind up in the penitentiary uh as great a rate Mm -hmm. okay if i give an argument like that a pragmatic argument all they have to do is produce some sociologist with a pragmatic argument that pushes the other way uh and everybody in politics today is adept at generating reports and tables and proving what they want with statistics. And none of them are real. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're all it's, made up. It's, it's, all, it's all smoke. Yeah. Uh, so I want to say uh, marriage should be honored because God told Moses on Mount Sinai mm-hmm. that you shall not commit adultery. Yeah. That, uh, that God instituted marriage in the garden. And because God instituted marriage, we don't have the right or the authority to alter it or tinker with it. Mm-hmm. We can't reverse it or invert it. So if I if I have a ham radio club that I formed, I can write the bylaws and I can change the bylaws because it's my club. Um, but marriage was created by God in the garden. Uh, we have no authority. Burgerfell has no authority to, mm. t- to touch what marriage is because God established it. Yeah. Um, uh, the same thing is true of the government of the church. Uh, th- that's another government that was formed directly by God. And the, so God forms the institution. God makes the rules for the institution. And the same thing is true of civil government. Uh, Romans 13, no authority exists except 
what is established by God. Mm -hmm. But there three times in Romans 13, it, it uses the phrase that the civil authorities are God's deacon, God's diakonos, mm -hmm. uh, to reward the righteous and punish the wrongdoer, which means that the civil magistrate is God's servant, mm -hmm. right? And uh, must function, must learn how to function as God's servant. So basically, if someone tries to uh, offer a utilitarian approach to these things, I would say the conservative movement has been trying that for half a century. We've been arguing that way for half a century, and we've been losing for half a century. We need to go back to a, a bracing, um, full-throated embrace of what we're actually conserving. Yeah. And what we're actually conserving is Christendom. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, you you cannot uh, you cannot conserve anything if you're not conserving what you need to conserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I there's a quote by Teddy Roosevelt, and the actual quote says that conservation means development as much as it does um, preservation. But I think you can take that and change it to conservatism means development as much as it does preservation and the same for Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so we can be very comfortable in thinking about, okay, this is what we have now, this little island that we've managed to hold on to either in our faith, like, you know, we can't pray in mm -hmm. schools, but we can pray in our house. So like, let's really <laughs> take hold of that. Let's um, that. Yeah, yeah, let's uh, really uh, glory in what we have now um, and et cetera, et cetera, throughout all of um, conservatism right now. And so, uh, yeah, but like, at the same time, we need to actively be developing and engaging in culture and engaging in these political discourses. And so when you're thinking about the church and then you're thinking about culture beyond that, what are the what are the key areas that you see as Christians and as people who are conservative need to be focusing on is the place where Reformation needs where to we take place, where we need to be where building. we need to be building and developing. Okay. Um, so the, the baseline is what I said earlier, worship. We need to be planting churches that know what the business of the church, the central business of the church is, worship. But uh, I'm fond of saying that theology comes out your fingertips, and whatever it is that's coming out your fingertips is your theology. So if you are planting churches where people are worshiping God on the Lord's Day, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, something's going to be coming out of their fingertips, and what that is is what they're building. So. Uh, to, to your question, what do I think, what are the priorities for building um, out there Monday Monday through Saturday before we get to worship God again, mm. okay? Uh, I would say, number one, education, okay? Um, Christians need to get every last baptized kid out of the public schools. <laughs> and then maybe some of the other unbaptized ones will come too. <laughs> and then we can baptize them. Um, so ba basically... That is the education system, prim primarily higher ed. The colleges are really bad, really bad on this. But the whole system, K through 12 and higher ed, uh, they are the lymph nodes that are spreading the cancer to our entire um, country, our in entire nation. Mm -hmm. All the foolishness is coming, coming out of our schools. We don't know how to be human, and we don't know how to teach our kids to be human, and we have these established schools that steep the kids in agnosticism when it comes to how to be a human being. Um, because you can't be a human being unless you're functioning as someone created in the image of God, and you're not allowed to talk about that in school. And so consequently, Christians need to stop supporting 
the enemy of God, the central enemy of God in our country today is the education system. Mm-hmm. And Christians need to get the hell out. Yeah, let's let's talk about some of what you guys. And that was not cussing. <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, yeah. Let's let's talk some about uh, what you guys have been doing here in Moscow. You know, on that on that point on classical right. education. You know, you founded a, a, a university as well as a K through twelve school. Um, I won't. I'll let you talk about it in your right. own words. Tell people. Tell people what you're doing. Sure. We, um, Log- uh, Logos School is the school that I had a hand in founding. We started that in the early '80s. Um, it has grown and flourished, and um, uh, God has really prospered us. It's 550 students now, wow. and in a in a town this size, that is really huge. That's really uh, yeah. uh, really significant. And then when you throw in all the homeschoolers that we have here. And then another, other smaller schools have sprung up, Christian schools have sprung up in Moscow. Um, we are within shouting distance of government education in Moscow dipping below 50%. That's incredible. So um, is we, about a, I would say about a third of school-aged children now are receiving a Christian education in Moscow, Idaho. Mm. And our goal praise is... Praise God. Yeah, like, pra- praise, praise God. Yeah. So that's just been wonderful. God has blessed it, and we're very, very, very grateful. Uh, so we we did that. Uh, I did it primarily as a uh, an involved parent. I didn't want my kids to get the kind of education I got, and so we started a school. One uh, Becca, our oldest, was a toddler, and Nancy one day said to me, "Doug, I can't see handing her over to someone we don't know." And saying, here she is, teach her about everything. And <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what, could go, yeah, what could go wrong? And I didn't, I knew virtually nothing about Christian education at the time. But I, except the one thing I knew is that I agreed with that. I agreed with what Nancy said. And so, somewhat rashly, I said, don't worry, we'll have a Christian school started by the time Becca hits kindergarten, which we did. We had a handful of students the first year, and it was, a Geronimo amen moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to brag too, so you wanted to teach your children Latin yeah. so that they could learn the languages, but you yourself didn't know Latin. So right. I've heard um, that you started taking courses on Latin and you were about a week or two ahead of what yeah. they were learning yeah. in school. So you would go learn it, study it, and then go teach it to them yeah. and then go back. Um, and if that doesn't speak to your dedication and how much you believe in this thing, I don't know what does. Well, it was um, that was an exciting time. <laughs> so I had these third graders who didn't know Latin. I didn't know Latin. <laughs> and so I went back to the university and, and started taking courses in Latin and putting together something to teach the kids. And that's another thing about Christian education is if you have, if all you have to worry about is Sunday school, you have to get through an hour a week and you can tell the kids Bible stories or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start a Christian school, they show up in August at 8 a.m. and all their little fat faces are looking up at you. <laughs> And you, you're going to have them all day until three o'clock, and then they're going to be back tomorrow, Monday through Friday, for the next nine months. <laughs> Very exhausting <laughs> prospect. You have to have something to say, yeah. right? You have to have a worldview. You you can't just um, and you're doing this because the the school down the street, the free one, is has was so disappointing. But you you have to scramble to say, okay, what am I going to What's the Christian view of history? What's the Christian view of mathematics? How, what's the Christian view of, of, of science and, and so on? So um, 
uh, we began that. And then when Becca was uh, uh, going into her senior year, we started to get mailings from colleges all over the country uh, for college. And and uh, Nancy was the impetus behind uh, Logos. She was also the impetus behind New St. Andrews. You know, she was saying, you know. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it's time. You did great with yeah, this one. Time to move up a I level. Did, I did not. <laughs> marry a slug did i (laughs) (laughs) and um and so uh, we started new st andrews college just uh, just one year for the freshman year and the second year we added a sophomore year freshman sophomore and third year Mm. and now the lord has really blessed that as well and and one of the things that we have labored to do is we wanted these schools to be private schools but by private, I mean private, private, not especially at the college level, where we've not we've made a dedicated point to not take one thin dime from the government for anything, uh, because that's the that's the handle that they use. That's the that's where how they grab yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. My wife uh, went to Patrick Henry College in in Virginia, which is also they have like a similar mm-hmm. uh, mindset. They don't take uh, money, and then we had. Uh, uh, the former president of uh, it was Wyoming Catholic College, who they also do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think that's certainly uh, you know a really important point. And I I, I want to kind of compare and contrast. You know, I know that uh, Rod Dreher does not like you very much, yeah. uh, and 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 likes to write some not nice things about you. But I would like to compare. Uh, and, and, and contrast uh, your two different models for, for viewing communities. So, uh, you know, as, as you all know, uh, Rod Dreher wrote this book called The Benedict Option, uh, where basically he kind of walked through how, uh, you know, as Christians, we can silo ourselves uh, off from the kind of global uh, and economic community, pull ourselves away uh, so that, you know, our kids and our, and our communities won't be influenced, um, you know, by the evils of the world. Uh, I would like to say that you know me viewing a lot of a lot of the content from the from the school from Canon Press, uh, you know, from Christchurch, from you, from Blog and May Blog, like uh, that. You guys are 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 presenting kind of a different way forward. Right. Um, uh, it's I would not call it a hostile takeover. I would <laughs> say a friendly and benevolent uh, takeover of community. It's armed. It's an it's an armed defense. So yes. So. Um, so uh, Rod Dreher is, I think, r- frequently outstanding when it comes to diagnosis. When mm-hmm. if you want someone to tell you how bad it is, um, he's very good. Yeah. Um, the the Benedict Option was very good in that respect, and and his book, more recent book, Live Not by Lies, yes. was very very good on on that. He, the, but the difficulty is, modern Christians, Christians in the twenty first century, who are confront being confronted not with the authoritarianism of Europe when America was being colonized but with the totalitarian impulse so we're we're up against uh totalitarians mm-hmm. and we have no north america to flee to right there are right. no there are no colonies on the moon um so yeah uh, the, i forget <laughs> who, um so whoever it was uh, it was trotsky maybe you may not be uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Yeah. Okay. okay. So the, the, here's the difficulty with the the Benedict option. You're going to go out and start a little community in the middle of Wyoming or in 
Idaho or you're going to start your little community. Well, they're not going to let you, mm. right? Yeah. The, the Amish, they're going to leave alone for a while because they've got postcards and they've become a thing. They're mm. a touristy thing, you know, okay, we'll just leave them alone for the time being. Well, and they're not very, you know, they don't have like a ton of influence, you know, right. over the political. Either. And they're trying not to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, they, we'll just save them for last right, is the, the thinking. But if there were um, Christians on the right who build a self-conscious community um, and they're trying to do the Benedict option and they have no defenses in place, no mechanism for fighting, they are going to be swallowed. They're just mm-hmm. going to be assimilated and swallowed. Uh, and as soon as you have defense is ready as soon as you're prepared to fight you're going to find yourself in the fight which means that you're you've inadvertently landed in what we're doing which i prefer to call the boniface option mm. <laughs> that's great right. the, that's the title of your next book uh, right? yeah I, I, we, we've toyed with the idea of <laughs> toyed with the, the boniface option where the you know he's missionary to the was it the frisians anyway mm-hmm. i think it was the frisians mm-hmm. um and well, this tree is sacred to Thor, and Boniface said, "Oh, and chopped it down." <laughs> <laughs> so, if the God established the antithesis, what we call the antithesis, in Genesis chapter three, there is eternal enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and there is absolutely nothing you can do to erase that enmity. And if you try to uh, fix it with a truce or a peace treaty of some sort that's not really a truce that's the that's you going over to the other side mm-hmm. um, there is an ineradicable enmity between the people of god and the people who don't want to be the people of god and so when you are rebuilding you have to take into account the fact that the rulers above you are not believers and and um and you're basically i would describe us as being in a nehemiah situation uh we are in a pagan empire we are we're surrounded by paganism and there's certain help that nehemiah would take he he would take the blessing of the emperor to go do what you're doing but the locals uh sanballat and those others he wouldn't receive any help from at all they're they were going to do it with the work of believers only uh, so we're we're not uh, going to sh- start shooting at anybody just because they're not uh, a non-Christian. Right. Um, but we are going to we are prepared to defend ourselves against hostile attempts to undermine or blow up or slander or do whatever it is they are are doing. And and we want to build a full orbed Christian community where um, if. Uh, and that means education, that means the arts, that means politics when the time comes, that means um, uh, education, you know, every, everything, the, everything that people do, auto mechanics, you know, every, we, we want to have our people involved in those things. Right. No, that's incredibly good. And I think frequently one of the critiques that we have of conservatives um, and that you see the left doing so incredibly well is a constant incrementalism 
and the way they approach mm-hmm. things. So sometimes we um, conservatives will like wake up and be like, oh, my goodness, how have liberals taken over every major institution? When did this right. happen? Right. But you look back and they've been playing a long and slow game um, right. since the 1950s and before, like slowly but surely moving things in their direction. And so there are, I think, two things that uh, we would love for you to speak to. So one, as you're talking about slowly taking over different aspects of a community from education to the arts to a politics can you talk us through how you've constructed a theology of resistance mm-hmm. um, and a theology of resistance that we can that we can implement in our own lives and in our own thinking? That's not just, you know, crazy people running around saying, no, we're not going to con- we're not consenting to this, but one that they can actually um, rigorously find in scripture and apply to their lives. Right. And then how does that lead to an incrementalism um, for Christians and for conservatives when it comes to reforming and rebuilding these institutions that we've largely ceded over time and that are just crumbling before us. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the increment, I think you're raising an important point about the incrementalism. Uh, and I would go back to Dreyer's book, live not by lies. I think the, the, the foundational thing is refusing to go along with nonsense. Um, don't, uh, uh, normal middle America right now, is being uh, gaslit. Uh, th- we're, we're being told that uh, the most manifest lies, and we're being told, uh, and we're being told to conform ourselves to the most manifest lies, because the issue is conformity, and the issue is how much can they get you to swallow. Mm-hmm. Now, the Christian resistance has to begin. It, um, um, R.L. Dabney uh, once said that uh, northern conservatism is simply the shadow that follows radicalism to perdition. Mm. Okay, so anything the liberals can propose, we can do it five years later. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, that's been like an ongoing theme even with like the gay marriage debate right oh, like know. now now the gop is 51 percent of republicans are like oh it's not that bad but transgenderism we're really against yeah, that this, this for is now. we're going to draw the line for now yeah, for oh, now. You know. yeah, yeah. what dabney called respectable growling um, <laughs> but uh, so w- one of the things uh, you if you want to test whether someone is really a conservative say if you had the power to repeal obergefell would you Mm. Well, and this is the same thing we're seeing with Roe v. Wade right now, right? So, like, mm-hmm. we have incredible progress being made in Texas, and then all of a sudden, a lot of conservatives are like, "Oh, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. That seems yeah. like a lot at one time. We're imposing the government on people. This is terrible." Yeah. And you just step yeah. back and you're like, "How long have you been pro-life? Like, I'm just really confused by what's long, happening here." As long here. as there was money in it, yeah. <laughs> as, as long as I could raise funds from the donors on this, because. Conservative donors are chumps, let's be frank, mm. and they they fund organizations that are fighting, actually fighting the things that the donors want to um, see happen. Right. So um, our incrementalism, you have to when you're when you're an incrementalist, you have to be careful not to go native in the meantime. Right. You, um, what do you mean? Going native would be um, when some when a Republican is elected to Congress and they uh, and the Washington Post describes them as having grown in office. That means, <laughs> <laughs> that, that means that they're selling the they're yeah. selling the farm. They're yep. they're going native. They're, they're, okay, they they start. They've enjoyed the wine and cheese events that they've been invited to a little bit too much. They don't want to be unpopular. They don't. So uh, back to the Dabney quote. He said, um, "We we just say." 
um, okay, no, and then we try to make it work, and then no, we and then we try to make it work, and we have to say there, what we have to aim for is actual reversal, a change of direction, and the um, and the, that change of direction doesn't have to be uh, momentous or even consistent, uh, right? Um, so uh, let me qualify this. I don't believe I, I don't believe by any stretch that Trump was a principled conservative. Conservative, mm. I, but I think he was a loose cannon on deck, kind of a wrecking ball, and he was undoing certain things that were uh, prized possessions of the progressives, and that's why they went sideways. Yeah, uh, you know, um, the illustration I used for this was uh, Ronald Reagan's invasion of Grenada. <laughs> All right. I, I'm a child of the Cold War. I grew up in um, uh, Russian, uh, you know, childhood games. You would fight the Russians, and it was Cold War. And I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. That was my hometown. And it was real neat, right near D.C. So the elementary school I went to, we would used, we used to have nuclear war drills. Hide under the desk, everyone. You'll be no, saved. No, was, we, we'd go down to the basement and, you know, and sit next to the wall and say goodbye to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Just give you something to do yeah. until the, the moment came. So we had nuclear war drills. I grew up in this Cold War um, setting. And, and the Soviet Union and Soviet power was represented as the wave of the future as monolithic you cannot stop it it's going to everywhere it goes it's going to get entrenched and that basically it was the growth of communism the it was the the west had a policy of containment and uh commun and that's what vietnam was all about was uh, keeping communism from expanding but there was no notion of undoing it right right defeating it and the pinprick that was a big balloon overinflated balloon and when uh grenada went communist and reagan had an uh, an excuse to save some medical students american medical students uh he went in there and toppled the communist government of grenada which was the first time communism had been in, uh instituted and then reversed but it's a little mm -hmm. teeny island yeah. it's strategically nothing right but what it did is it popped the narrative right okay and so the so what to take that as a metaphor and then within a short time uh the soviet union gets the wobbles and the berlin wall comes down the whole thing comes unstuck but before i can tell you that um that the image of this of the communist world was one of you know was the death star that, yeah, that's that's what it was, and you 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 can't blow up the Death Star. Everybody knows that, and so, but then it ha but then it happened. What Christians have to come to grips with, reckon with, is we need to be looking for a place, an issue, a time where we just pick one progressive issue that's dear to the progressive left and undo that. Okay, if there's one reversal, right? If there if there's one reversal, then the whole wrong side of history argument evaporates. 
Yeah. Right. Because they don't they they don't have a transcendental grounding. Mm -hmm. They don't have the word of God. They don't have God saying anything to Moses on Sinai. They don't have Christ as Lord. So consequently, everything they have is imminent. It's in this world. And and so they talk about the arc of history bending toward justice like Obama did. Uh, But it's all internal to the system. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if you take something that they think is destiny their destiny, and you blow it up, you, and you undo that particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be something big like Roe or Obergefell. That could be a, uh, a big thing. Or it could be uh, a, a state or a county successfully saying, we're, you know, let's say Oklahoma declared themselves a Christian republic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, something like that. And yeah. and and then successfully fought, you know, that's a that's a reversal in principle. That would be more like Grenada. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and they wouldn't even like I don't feel like they would know what to do. <laughs> you know, just kind of stare in awe right. uh and then and then try to crush that. I think one of the uh biggest places that we've seen this kind of incrementalism that Republicans have continually capitulated to uh is on COVID-19, yeah. which is uh, something that this is when I started like paying attention to a lot of the stuff that right. you were putting out. Um, I think a lot of people, I mean, I read your, you know, the people that write the letters to the editor. I think a lot of people are the same way. They've they've uh, come on to reading and listening to your stuff mm-hmm. throughout uh, the pandemic. Um, you know, you were, I think, definitely one of the first and few uh, Christian leaders that acted with um, integrity and with prayer in uh uh, you know, how they responded to, mm-hmm. to COVID-19. Uh, can you tell us a bit about, you know, for people who have not listened to your stuff before, right. what your view is on, you know, the the wool that's been pulled over our eyes uh, right. and how the church should be responding uh, to this kind of government interference in the way the church right. operates? I, I see the governmental response to COVID as being a grotesque abuse of an of the legitimate government power so i don't have a problem with the government having some responsibility for public health mm-hmm. right uh, um, but this is a grotesque abuse so if the government uh, let's say scarlet fever broke out in s- some town and the public health officer quarantined the family that had scarlet fever or, or you know whatever it was I, I i don't think that that's tyranny you know, uh, if the bubonic plague broke out, I don't think it's tyranny to say you guys have to stay home for the time for the time being. <laughs> um, that's that's not tyranny. But to quarantine an entire population because you might be sick is ins- you're just enslaving everybody. There's no there's no in Idaho at any rate. There's no legal authority for for locking everybody down for quarantining everybody for the uh, people who are symptom free mm-hmm. and. And there's, uh, and yet, a lot of people because as Chesterton once said, uh, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, and you don't have it thought through, and and more, worse than that, more than that, if your pastor or your Christian leaders don't know what they believe, all they all they can do is get rolled. And a lot of churches got rolled because they didn't have a defined worldview on uh, the governments that God has established. So um, 
and here's the basic structure of it. There are three options, really, when it comes to church-state relations. Um, one is to say that the, the ultimately, in an ideal setup, the state is under the church, uh, which would be um, the historic Roman Catholic view. Okay. Um, another, the other, and the second view is Erastianism, where the church is under the state. The state is supreme, and and the church is a subordinate authority and answers to the state. Um, and there were in the Reformation period part of the part of the development of nation state uh, church state relations. It was a battle between these uh, uh, views. Uh, so Erastianism was co- a common view of civil authorities in the Reformation era. But the reformers themselves, and this would be um, my position, um, articulate a view of uh, we call sphere sovereignty, uh, where, and I, uh, I believe that the Catholic terminology for it, it would be subsidiarity. But um, in the reform tradition, uh, we call it sphere sovereignty or Kuyperian um, spheres. Uh, Abraham Kuyper was... Um, a theologian, a Dutch theologian, a newspaper man, a member of parliament, prime minister of the Netherlands. He was kind of a tornado in boots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was just one of those. Mm-hmm. He was a phenomenon. Um, but if God has established, if the foundational government of all governments is self-control, self-government, um, John Adams said that our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. He said it is wholly unfit for any other. So our constitution presumes self-government in the people. Mm-hmm. If everybody's an anarchist or a libertine or an antinomian, uh, our, the American constitution will not work. It just won't. So yeah, the ground floor is self-government. And then under Christ, under the lordship of Christ, he has established civil government directly. He's established family government directly, and he's fam- established church government directly. These three spheres are are on the same level. It's not one's in charge of the other. They they have different delegated responsibilities. So the family is the ministry of health, education, and welfare. Mm-hmm. That's the family. The um, civil government is the ministry of justice. And the church is the ministry of grace and peace, or if you want to call it the word, the ministry of word and sacrament. So um, the civil government doesn't get to tell the church when to dispense the sacraments or whether to use wine or grape juice or whether to baptize with heads upstream or downstream because it's not their sphere. It's, it's not in their job description. Mm-hmm. And the church doesn't get to tell the civil government to have everybody drive on the right side of the road or drive, you know, um, we, the, we don't tell the civil government to do certain things. The family doesn't tell the church. Um, the, the family, father, the head of the household does not hold the keys of discipline and church discipline and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So they all have their respective assigned roles. And like a Venn diagram, there's some slight areas of overlap. Okay. So, if uh, we're having a worship service and the fire chief break, b- busts in and interrupts us and says, hey, your roof's on fire, 
That's where the Venn diagram overlaps. <laughs> right. <laughs> the fire chief is interested in roofs being on fire, mm -hmm. and we're interested. You're under in, a roof. We, yeah. We're under a roof. So uh, we work. The, so you work that out, and people who are under the self government given by Christ can work that sort of thing out. But they, you, you have to have a robust uh, commitment to guarding your sphere. So the the government the civil government is not in charge of whether or not we meet mm -hmm. okay if we want to meet to worship god the civil government has no authority to tell us that you no you can't uh do that um and so any more than we in the church have the right to declare war right that's that's not our not our department so um using the roof on fire uh, illustration, or if uh, somebody from the government shows up and says the dam is upstream is about to break, uh, time to clear out. We don't have to have a meeting of the elders to determine whether that guy was born <laughs> born again or you yeah. know, did he believe in Jesus? Uh, no, the dam is going to break. Uh, so uh, because we believe that the civil magistrate has a certain interest in public health, when the whole thing happened and we were all caught flat-footed uh, on the facts of the case. Um, uh, Christ Church went online for three weeks. One, two, three. We had three worship services online. Then we went to drive-in services three, um, three weeks just outside the city limits because we were already in sort of a showdown with the civil authorities. It was So we didn't meet in person for six weeks total. And right in the middle of that was when we had started to go, hey, wait a minute. The roof's not on fire, or the 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 dam isn't going to break, and this is this something fishy is going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we went uh, after six weeks. We went back to meeting in person without requiring masks or anything um, else like that. And we've been meeting that way ever since. Uh, sometimes when we've been meeting that way, it's been in violation of the city's order sometimes not depending on the time but we and have the rules that they've made up and and the rules that they've made up <laughs> right and we've had a few collisions we had a a psalm saying at city hall they were extending the city extended the masking order and it was not necessary at all so we showed up to sing three psalms and then go home again to register a protest and unmasked uh, and, and was that unmasked, unmasked. to sing psalms yes unmasked psalms and so three of our people got arrested and 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 that was they got arrested when we what we were doing wasn't even illegal mm -hmm. um, um and so now and the city recognized that belatedly dropped the charges and now they're being countersued by uh, our our three and that that's cases in the courts but we've been so virtually this entire time we've been in a standoff situation with the city um and a little bit with the state because the city is hiding behind the state's order right um and but we've what we're doing is defending a kyperian sphere sovereignty uh structure we we are a legitimate government under heaven recognized established by christ and we have the authority to make decisions in our sphere yeah, that's kind of been the the disappointing thing that we've seen uh, from particularly like Protestants uh, over the last year and a half is you have a lot of these particularly prominent ones, right? Like Russell Moore, mm -hmm. David French, uh, 
at all who uh, are saying, oh, well, because Romans 13, you right. know, we're subjected to, to civil authority. You know, we, we have to listen to our rulers. Sorry. Sure. And that's Erastianism. Right. So that's the church under the state. That and and so I'm not an Erastian, so there right. you go. <laughs> right. Well, and that's and that's one of the things that I want to cover, you know, for people who who have not listened to you before. Probably the thing that I cite most frequently uh from Doug Wilson is your is your kind of uh you know, your your how you talk about Romans thirteen and how that's a misapplication right. uh of scripture. Uh could you explain that to our listeners who maybe have not have heard you before? Why is David sure. French wrong? Sure. So the so the first thing to say about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 is that it it means something, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not like, I, I, here's a part of the Bible I don't like, let's toss it out. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to begin by pointing out that the man who wrote Romans 13 uh, escaped, ev- evaded a roadblock at Damascus by being lowered from the city wall in a basket. He ended his life beheaded by Rome, the the government he was telling everybody to be subject to considered him such a threat that he he was beheaded by mm-hmm. them. All right, so people who tell me Romans thirteen like stuff, if they had the kind of track record that Paul had of subverting empire, empires, I'd be more disposed to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> right, but if the, if their track record is one of just collapsing, going along with every tyrannical thing. Well, I'm suspicious. Peter, who wrote First Peter uh, two, um, he he escaped from prison, a jailbird. He, he's a jailbird. Um, he was in jail for preaching the gospel. An angel breaks him out after um, singing psalms late at night. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was Paul and Silas, and that was back to Paul. But Peter in uh, in Acts then goes to John Mark's house and disappears into the night. That he doesn't go turn himself in, right? Mm-hmm. So Peter, on the on the assumption that Peter and Paul were not hypocrites, right? And what they didn't just want us to listen to what they wrote there; they wanted to us to listen to what they wrote and to imitate their way of life, as Paul says, uh, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." Okay, mm-hmm. the early Christian apostles, and uh, if if there's anything Christians should know, it's that Christ was crucified by the authorities. Okay, and he, he was not crucified by them because he had a go along, get along message. Right, <laughs> right, right. His message of love was just too sweet for them to take, yeah, yeah, so yeah. they really had to too, get yeah, rid yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, this Christ figure is too sweet. No, what happened is he, the temple complex in Jerusalem, was a, an enormous economic machine, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem in at after the triumphal entry he goes up to the temple the temple complex is about 30 acres mm-hmm. most of that is the court of the gentiles where the money changers and the and the sacrificial animals were that's the court of the gentiles and it's interesting that the court of the gentiles was filled up with clean animals that represented the jews the gentiles were squeezed out yeah. right and jesus goes up there he makes a court of whips it, it says, and he f- starts flipping tables, uh, 30 acres, roughly. He's, he's got quite a project. And then kids from the triumphal entry, it says, were in the temple complex singing Hosanna. So Jesus had a soundtrack, doing, <laughs> which, which was, <laughs> there, was these annoy- there were these annoying kids singing praises to Jehovah while Jesus is driving 
driving the animals out and preventing the uh, people from walking through merchant. So Jesus walked up to the economic complex of the day, licked his finger and said, here, let me touch your eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they reacted violently and railroaded him and had him killed. Jesus, um, Jesus was not a go-along, get-along uh, uh, flower child. Mm -hmm. that, that's not what happened. So Christians follow him. And then his apostles are following his footsteps. Now, it's clear and plain and obvious that Christians ought not to be scofflaws. And Christians ought to be, one, apart from um, these issues, we ought to be the best, we should be the, the most productive citizens, we should be the most cooperative citizens, we should be a, a prince's dream come true. You know, we will, we will serve you diligently um, in every area except where you tell us to deny Christ or to violate our conscience. And our conscience is not extreme. It's, we're, we're normal people. So the apostles followed in the Lord's footsteps. They taught their people, um, honor the king, honor all men, be honest. If you suffer, it, you should suffer as a Christian and not as a murderer or as a thief. Right. So Christians ought to respect the laws when the laws are doing what the laws are assigned to do. Mm -hmm. So in Romans 13, it says God wants to uh, reward the righteous and wants his deacons to reward the righteous and punish the wrongdoer. But in our totalitarian era, they've made they've turned that into a photo negative. Okay? So in California, for example, during the lockdown, church was not essential. Right. right? Church is non-essential. We have deemed we jitney uh, tin pot rulers have de deemed uh, church is non-essential. Pot shops, cannabis shops are essential. And abortion clinics are essential, but church is not essential. Okay, now, by what standard? It's clear that you are, Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Mm -hmm. Substitute light for darkness, darkness for light. Sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet. The deacons of God's deacons in the civil magistrates, in um, progressive states particularly, but it's not unknown in more conservative heartland states, have gone over to the other side. These are deacons who have rebelled against their master. Mm -hmm. They have said, we are going to punish the righteous and we're going to reward the wrongdoer. All right, we're going to, if, if you are out and gay, you know, out and gay, we're going to hold pride parades so that we can have parades that go with before destruction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, you got a, oh. uh, a church and basically a city to run. But uh, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I, uh, yet, yet, yet is the key word. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, your biblical justification for fake vaccine passports uh, generated a lot of uh, uh, controversy, shall we say, uh, particularly yeah. in Silicon Valley, who decided to basically remove your video from the internet. That's right. Um, tell us what, what... Shut up, shut up, they explained. Yes. <laughs> so, so tell us, you know, especially because a majority of our listeners live in D.C., there's still a mask mandate in D.C., their, their vaccine 
passports necessary to go to restaurants. I mean, it is. Well, and not only that, some of our friends at the American Principles Project are having their videos taken off YouTube right now, too, for saying very similar things about the vaccine. Um, Steve Bannon's war room is now mm -hmm. being banned from yeah. places. And so it's starting to hit closer to home for all of our listeners, right. too. Like, yeah. So yeah. so what is the the biblical case for vaccine passports and why is the governing authority so threatened by you mm -hmm. saying that there may be one? Yeah, well, let, um, let me take our neighboring state, Washington, over here, mm -hmm. where uh, they are, in a week or two, I think they're going to a system where you need a vaccine passport to do anything, go anywhere. Boy, I'm glad my flight leaves tomorrow, <laughs> not next week. <laughs> um, go to grocery stores, whatever. In other words, if you don't comply, if you don't comply, you can't eat. Mm. You can't buy groceries. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything. Okay, now, um, they're they're going for they're pushing all their chips in they are they're going for broke on this thing and as the uh episode with the southwest pilots dem yeah. demonstrated um all that is necessary to break this is for the american people to say let us think about it no <laughs> <laughs> now if i i would say it's it'd be far far better if there are large numbers of you to do what the South Southwest um, pilots did and just not show up, not cooperate, and br that'll bring them to their knees. You can call uh, call in sick. It's the, what do you got? Well, I've got the freedom flu. <laughs> 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 got, um, so uh, so there's the, if, there are, if there are sufficient numbers, you should just refuse to cooperate. You cannot, they cannot make you. Um, do this thing. If you're in a deep blue state like Washington is, or a, Eastern Washington isn't, but Western Washington, the, the people running the show, if it's California, if it's Oregon, if it's Washington, and you happen to be there and you, and you believe that you have an obligation before God to feed your family, okay, you also have an obligation to not take into your body something that you believe they've, they've by fiat made you an experimental lab rat mm. okay i'm so i'm i'm not among those who who claim that covid is a is an imaginary disease i, I believe that covid has killed a lot of people um, but just in my circle of um acquaintances people you know in the realm of people that i know i know of covid deaths but i also know of vaccine deaths right it's it's not like <laughs> um and i and I know by firsthand experience, you cited the YouTube video, mm -hmm. that if I had someone in my family, this is a, I, I don't, but let's say I had firsthand knowledge, someone in my family decided to get the vaccine and their heart swelled and then they died right. a day, a day mm -hmm. later. I know that I would not be allowed to talk about that. On YouTube, I wouldn't be allowed to talk about it on Twitter. I wouldn't be able to. I, so basically, I'm. I believe that I am in a repressive, totalitarian um, setup that is a matter of life and death. It's a it's a life and death situation, and they won't let me talk about it. They won't let me coordinate it, coordinate with others to resist this sort of thing. Under those circumstances, um, if someone said, hey, I know a guy, and they give you a, a card to show um, the person at Safeway, right? And they let you in, and you buy bread for your family, and you go feed your family. 
Um, that is no more a violation of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 than it was for Moses' mother to uh, hide Moses, hide the baby Moses. Um, even though the king had, the king said, you have, to, you have to expose the boy babies. Mm-hmm. Yes, which brings up a very interesting point that you've made before, um, a biblical understanding of deceit and when mm-hmm. deceit is appropriate. Yeah. And one of the things that I like to study is in Scripture, the amount of times that women use deceit to win battles is oh. perhaps one of my favorite things. And there seems to be yeah. this like divine pass by God for women in particular. Yeah. Like it's usually not women who are like leading the charge into battle with a sword, but it is women who are dropping large stones on King's heads. It's mm-hmm. the two women who worked for Pharaoh who were helping rescue a lot yeah. of the babies. The, and the then when brought before the King, they were like, what? No, mm, yeah. these, these Hebrew women, yeah. they're just so strong. Like we have no part in this. So you're calling on all women to start making fake vaccine passports. <laughs> yeah, the women saying. would be, the women would be particularly good at jail. Jail, the wife of Heber, yeah. told, told Sisera to come into the tent. And he, right, yeah. I have warm milk for I you. It'll milk. be great. Here's a, here's a graham cracker. <laughs> <laughs> Nail goes through the head <laughs> two seconds later. So, yeah, uh, so where is it biblically acceptable to use deceit? Where is deceit? Okay, so um, obviously you there's a um, hurdle for a pastor to cross when he, when he's saying, to evangelical Christians, here are the circumstances under which you can lie. Um, <laughs> uh, and somebody's going to say, oh, okay, I click, and you just turn it off right away. But um, I think that that's, um, they know, and I, I would also affirm that the lake of fire is reserved for liars, it says in Revelation. It says in Colossians, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old nature with its evil practices. One of the Ten Commandments is you, you shall not bear false witness, which is a prohibition of perjury. But then Proverbs talks about you shouldn't perjure yourself and you shouldn't lie in other circumstances either. Okay, all of that uh, it, I take on board as a baseline in any church or in any town, society, culture that you are that is um holding together that you want to be intact lying is corrosive to that unity because lying is an act of war okay okay what it boils down to is when you when you get that that's what it boils down to um when you are at war um or in in a fake war like a, a fake war would be training for war like a basketball game or a football game in a basketball game, it's, you're not breaking the Ten Commandments if you fake left and drive right. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. If you're in an actual war and you paint your tank to look like a bush, when in fact it is not a bush. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very dangerous bush, if anything. <laughs> a very dangerous bush. It's not a bush. And you're telling the pilots up in the sky that it's a bush. Are you not lying? Well, yes, you're lying. Your de- deception is a... Um, is a tactic in warfare, just like killing is. Killing is, it's not the case. I'm not a pacifist. Killing, all all killing is not murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So uh, when David went to war, or when David went to war, he was killing, but he wasn't murdering. When David had Uriah killed, he was murdering, not killing. Okay. When David pretended to be mad and... Uh, so that the Philistine king would let him go, 
one of the great lines in scriptures, do I have a shortage of madmen in my court? <laughs> <laughs> why, did, why did you think I needed an extra one? Um, uh, so he, he's using deception. So if a Christian is working for an intelligence agency and he's crossing a border and the guard says, do you work for the CIA? Um, does he, is the only appropriate Christian response Yes, thank you for giving me this opportunity <laughs> to come clean. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Right. So basically, when things are when when things are at the point where it's either civil war or a war or civil war or a cold war, where, where things are that divided, I think that in uh, you are in a position to use righteous deception, and but Scripture has to be the um, uh, the rule. Rahab sent. Uh, the people chasing the spies by a different route than they actually went. She and it says in James that that's what the, the moment of her justification was when she deceived another woman. Uh, Rahab does this. Um, uh, Jail the wife of Heber does it. The woman. And anyway, it's um, that's basically uh, I think very clear. So if I have the option of uh, if I have the option of feeding my family. And using a fake vaccine passport uh, to do it, I'm, I don't have any uh, qualms about that. I'm not sure I would use a fake vaccine passport to get into a hockey game or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, only know. only for the essentials, you <laughs> yeah. know. So to quote one of your articles, then you said that this means that all the elements of a true Kuyperian Renaissance are now in place. Yes. Um, what are these elements, and what does that look like going forward? Okay. So, um, we have, we've basically, we've come to a position where I, I said the Kuyperian Renaissance would be church, state, family. Our, the state is overgrown, swollen, and the um, church has in its theology and practice and discipline been uh, sort of um, weak, uh, sh uh, shrunken. And a lot of churches closed because of that. But the churches that didn't are growing. Uh, I know of a number of churches that refuse to co cooperate, and they're just you know blowing out the doors. They're, it's a it's a time of harvest mm -hmm. uh, for them. And then with family, those are the three entities. I see a real opportunity for shrinking government because they are so massively swollen and obviously incompetent. Yeah. Right? Uh, that this is an opportunity to push back against the, the overweening government. Uh, faithful churches are exploding, and families have been chased into, uh, uh, well, chased into faithfulness may be too strong, but think, think of it this way. Over the last two years, we've gone from 2 million homeschooling families to about six million. Okay, if you told me five years ago that there would be, in just a few years, there's going to be a radical increase, four million new homeschoolers, and they will be doing it because the secular government chased them there. Right? I would ah, come on, talk, be realistic. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of families have an opportunity to say, you know, we can do this. We can reassume our responsibilities for health, education, and welfare. Uh, and they were—they never—they wouldn't have made that decision uh, 
on their own. Mm -hmm. And this is how I like to say that God draws straight with crooked lines. Uh, the overreach by the government has revealed their weakness, their ineptitude, their totalitarian impulses, and has chased certain faithful churches into a position of greater faithfulness mm -hmm. and has chased millions of families into a position of greater faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And we can all just come out of the other end of this and say, hey, why don't we keep what we've gained? Why don't we maintain what we were given? So the, the, idolatry, the idols that have started to wobble over the last year and a half, American idols, not the music, not the, not the show. Which is also not doing great either. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another, we'll add that to the list. Uh, uh, our idols have been our healthcare system, mm -hmm. our system of higher education, our public school system, our military. Um, the don't draft our daughters. Uh, oh, what's that? Don't draft our daughters. Don't draft yeah. our daughters. Well, there's there's that, and then there's who, whoever organized the withdrawal from Afghanistan couldn't organize a two car funeral. Yeah, so, <laughs> it was not without uh, creating uh, another funeral uh, to go uh, after that. Yeah, so it, it was just horrendous. So, how many ways do do the uh, the the things that are the pride and joy of America, and how many ways? Do we have to be humiliated at those places before we do what the Bible calls us to do, which is repent of the mm -hmm. idolatry? Um, and we're not at that point yet. We need to be uh, clearly. We need to be humiliated further. Right. Um, Humiliation yeah. will continue until morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly so. Yeah, well, uh, you know, let this be a, a charge to some of our listeners, you know, who may be teetering uh, on the edge about whether to homeschool, whether to, you know, start uh, taking their church in a different direction and that sort of thing. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people find you, your church, the content that you put out? Uh, plug, feel okay. free to plug all your stuff. Uh, sure. Uh, um, we've created my, my blog is probably the best clearinghouse to everything else that we're involved with. So mm -hmm. if, if you went to my blog, which is dougwills.com, uh, or the name of the blog is blog and may blog. So blog and may blog or dougwills.com will take you to my blog. And then there, there are links to, uh, ACCS, the classical Christian school association, Logos school, new St. Andrews college, Christ church, all the different things that we have. Canon press, um, are, uh, there are easy, uh, friction, free pathways from my blog. <laughs> yeah. All right. We did that on purpose. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks so much for coming on, and we uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Uh, it was my pleasure. So every week we like to uh, highlight a piece from AmCanon, our content aggregator on our website. And this week uh, we have a piece by a dear friend of ours, Sam Sampson, uh, which by the way is it's like a great name. Like <laughs> his name is really Sam, Sam Sampson. I just I think that's great. Uh, but his piece in the American Conservative is called "It's Time to Disobey COVID Mandates: Laws Contrary to the Human Good Are Not Only False Laws." but acts of violence against the human person, which can be disobeyed. Um, so this piece came out, uh, I think 
the 18th yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically, the point in Sam's piece is uh, it's you know we've we've been living under this the under these COVID rules for the last you know year and a half, almost two years now, mm-hmm. um, and it's about time that conservatives and people in communities start disobeying. Um, I've kind of seen this thing. I don't know about you, uh, you know, as you've as you've lived in D.C., but there are a lot of people. I keep coming back to Twitter. There are a lot of people on Twitter who are very like anti covid mandates, Mm -hmm. but still, you know, obediently put the mask on before they walk into Starbucks for their caramel latte. Uh, I, I, I really think that it's time for conservatives to put their foot down and say enough. Um. Sam's piece is really fantastic. I recommend that you go to americamoment.org slash amcannon to find it and to read it and that you would, you know, absorb it into your uh, day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you have some thoughts about this since you're a new D.C. dweller. (laughs) That's been the funny thing. Um, Coming from South Georgia, I'm not convinced that COVID actually existed in large parts of the South, Um, but in D.C. it certainly did and still does today. Uh, So Sam's piece, I think, really challenges conservatives. He basically says, like, we keep being told that if we follow these strict lockdown rules, these strict mandates, these strict mask requirements, then eventually COVID will end. But newsflash, COVID is never going to end unless you just stop treating it like it's a thing. So he argues to prudently um, stop wearing your mask and really challenge some of the assumptions that come with it, because ultimately the mask mandates are representing a yeah an attack on human flourishing itself and what it means to be fully human. And he has a great line where he says it teaches us to see other people as a pathogen to be avoided rather than a person to be embraced. And if that's not the message of today, I don't know what is. Well, I think about, you know, these these covid mandates. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that we can see through this, you know, aside from like, oh, mask off, everyone in charge is evil, uh, is that you know, conservatism, conservatism, Inc., if we're going to call it that, um, really has gotten by the last couple of decades just like advocating for what the left does just one step removed. So we saw this, you know, initially on the front end of this thing where it was, you know, okay, you know, they're, they're telling you to wear your mask, just do it for two weeks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just, just do it for two weeks, stay home to, to, what was it to like end the curve yeah, or slow, slow the, the spread, spread. two or weeks whatever. to slow the spread <laughs> so yeah it started 19 with that 19 months to slow the spread yeah it's and, fine. Then, and then and then two weeks turned to four turned to six and it mm-hmm. just like kept going and going and going um and conservatives were kind of there every step of the way like come on guys really do you have to be you know disrespectful and not wear your mask when asked like really really the conservative response here is to let businesses do what they want you know right. uh and 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 then you had you know the the <laughs> all of this vaccine stuff too right so like okay come on guys everyone get the vaccine then they'll finally let us free after 16 months of this you know, right? But by the time right. that the vaccines were widely publicly available, they said, guys, this time for real, if you get vaccinated, <laughs> they'll they'll let you return to normal. And spoiler alert, you know, over 50 percent of the population no, is vaccinated. close to 70 percent of the population is vaccinated. And I would guess a higher percentage in D.C. that still has mask requirements everywhere. And still and still nothing has changed. They have not let us free. And, and I really think that this is kind of empowered i mean i feel i feel like in this scenario right conservatives are playing lucy just holding the football right there ready to pull it away whenever obedient civilians (laughs) 
follow the rules exactly right fool me once shame on me fool me twice shame on you fool me three times i'm a republican yeah like (laughs) it's coined it's coined for a reason (laughs) fool me 19 times and i'm gonna fall for the rhino text message (laughs) donation ask one more time uh so i i yeah i'm just really disappointed with like typical conservative establishment here in dc like not not willing to say enough is enough you know and and um, I think that is really echoed by, mm-hmm. obviously, our chat with Pastor Wilson today. Uh, he's yeah. been one of the people, uh, particularly in Protestant world, kind of at the forefront of saying, "No, we're not. We're not going to limit capacity at our church. We're mm-hmm. not going to not let people come to church." Um, and and he's been just mercilessly like yeah. bullied and attacked for doing so. Yeah. Um, the man's a true patriot. <laughs> but that, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, all right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you uh, again for listening to Moment of Truth and for empowering uh, us to have the opportunity to go to Moscow, Idaho and interview one of our heroes. You know, I I know that we certainly really enjoyed it. I I really hope Pastor Wilson did, too, and that will have us back. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, until next time, um, follow us on the interwebs uh, at ammoment.org on all platforms. Check us out at AmericanMoment.org. And we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms. And you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.